So we are going to be continuing through Genesis today. And the really amazing thing as you study God's word is God loves to use the wrong people. Just objectively, these are the wrong guys. This isn't the right guy that you should choose. So if I'm sitting and I'm going over volunteer applications for the kids wing, and I really just need a solid nursery worker, and someone from the Bible, a hero of the faith, if their resume comes across my desk and I go, Moses, murderer, pass, right? Like I'm not gonna have him anywhere near kids because you killed a dude. You're the wrong guy. God says, no, that's my guy. And he does that over and over and over and over and over again in scripture. So there's this giant war going on and God needs a mighty man of valor. So he finds this kid named Gideon and Gideon is currently hiding from all of those nations and the warfare and the, he's in a wine press hiding away, being a total coward. And when the angel of the Lord, so Jesus shows up and says, Gideon, there you are, you mighty man of valor. And Gideon probably is like, you have the wrong guy. I'm the wrong guy. Over and over and over again, you're gonna see Jesus chooses who's the wrong guy. How about David? David is someone where even his dad, when the prophet comes and says, hey, go grab your sons because one of your sons is gonna be the next king to take over for Saul. He grabs everyone but David because it's not that kid. That's the wrong guy. What Two of my favorites are, you have Peter. Peter is a sailor. So he's got rough sailor's hands and salty sailor hair, and he's got a sailor's mouth. You know, we don't know how he talked, but he, he's a sailor and he has a mouth. So he's got a sailor's mouth. The Holy Spirit comes into him, the wrong guy, and the first time that he preaches, 3,000 people get saved. Jesus loves to use the wrong people. And this is my favorite, is John. So Peter and John, they have this thing. Through, if you read the Gospels, they just have these interactions with each other of, I'm gonna be your boss. I'm in charge of you. Jesus, just tell him who's, who's really greater. There's gotta be a seat next to yours. Who gets to seat, sit next to you in heaven? Is it me or him? Like that there could be any other options. They're just so rad. Is it me or is it this guy? And Jesus goes, actually, it's Jesus and then all y'all. There's no hierarchy here. But get this. If you have your Bible, go to John chapter 20 because you just gotta see it to believe it. This is the single most important moment in all of history, not just human history, but cosmic history. This is more important than when the sun lit. This is more important than when the earth was formed. This is the resurrection. Jesus has conquered sin and death, is rising victoriously over it, proving to everyone that God, that we, we don't die anymore that we have eternal life in him. This is the single most important moment in all of history. John has the opportunity to pen it and watch what he does. It's hysterical. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple. The other disciple is John. So we all need to know that. That's how John refers to himself the one whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together. Hey, we both started at the same point. We're running together. But the other disciple, John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Just letting you know, hey, I got there first, but hold on and stooping to look in. 
he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter, in case you didn't remember, he came following him. He came behind me. He, was, he didn't get there first. I got there first and he came behind me and went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes just laying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus's head, not laying with the linen clothes, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in three times in the most important moment of all human history. He goes, but I can outrun Peter. I just think that is so funny. Jesus loves using the wrong dudes. You have, this is, Jesus is risen. I got there first. We ran, we start, got the same information at the same time. We ran together. I got there first. Everyone needs to know that. Now, every believer who studies John gets to know, yeah, but John's faster than Peter. I just think that is hysterical. And so today we're continuing through Genesis and we're in Genesis chapter 12. And what you have is the wrong dude. You have someone who's the wrong guy that God is gonna continue to work through and work in and has a plan for that God, God's redemptive history is gonna be seen through. So right now we've gone through Genesis 1 through 11, which is considered the first half of the book. And that's the expelling from the garden and then the spiral of sin and curse downward till you have this Tower of Babel scenario where the people have rejected God and God displaces them. And then the last half of the book is focusing in on one family through which the seed is gonna come and the serpent's head is gonna be smashed. And this is where the Messiah is gonna come through and it's gonna be the nations that we follow through the rest of the Bible. Right here in the center is this pivotal moment where you have this guy, Abram. And that's who the family is gonna come through. This is where the seed is gonna be following through for the rest of scripture. And he's the wrong guy. If you follow the genealogy that you saw in the last chapter, they're all pagan names. Every single one of them is a pagan name. He's a pagan guy. He's raised in a pagan town with idol worship. His wife's name, Sarai, means wife of the moon god. Like he's just the wrong guy, but God loves to take the wrong people and use them for his glory so that everyone who gets to see this happen goes, wow, that must've been God. That's what you keep seeing with Moses. That's what you see with Gideon. When Gideon overcomes, everyone goes, that had to have been God because it couldn't have been Gideon. With David, over and over and over again, people say that had to have been a work of God because that, that was the wrong dude. He couldn't have done that in his own power or his own ability. And so right now we're gonna be looking at God is gonna do a work with Abraham. God promises to bless him and we're gonna follow him for quite a while. So let's jump into the Abraham story. We're starting in Genesis chapter 12. And he's called Abram and his wife's name is Sarai for right now. It will end up being Abraham and Sarah. I'm going to slip up and call him Abraham quite often. Forgive me for that. It's a heads up. <clears throat> Same dude. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
So there's a few interesting things to note here. So Abraham, he's met, Abraham is met and told, hey, I'm gonna make your name great, which is really fascinating because the last time that people tried making their name great, it was the Tower of Babel. They said, we don't need God. We're gonna make a name for ourselves. We can make our own way. We can make our own path. We don't need God anymore. It's this direct contrast to the Tower of Babel. And so I think God is showing that this greatness, this, this thing that we all long for, it's a byproduct of following God. The stuff that we really long for, that we need, that we spend our lives pursuing, all of the, the fulfillment that you get from that is a byproduct of following God. Everything else is a counterfeit. And so the examples that I overuse because I just think they're so good is like John D. Rockefeller, world's first billionaire, was asked in an interview, now that you have more money than anyone else on earth, what do you want? He says, just one more dollar. Because if I just get one more, then maybe I'll be happy. And then there's the classic one that everybody knows is Kurt Cobain. Kurt Cobain's at the top of his career. He has everything he could ever want, the prestige, the honor, the name, the success, and he ends his life. Because at the top, all the happiness, the fulfillment that he thought he was gonna receive was not there. All of the fulfillment that our soul is longing for is a byproduct that can only be gotten from following God. And so the people of Tower of Babel were trying to get it on their own apart from God, could not get it, but God promises, I'm gonna give you that. The second thing that's really interesting here, verses two through three are the most important verses of this chapter. Verse two is, and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It's a lot of pressure on one guy. But you and I know that this is foreshadowing Jesus, that how does one man bless every single other person? Well, Jesus is gonna come from him, that the Messiah will come, that he will crush the serpent. And because of the work of Jesus, every person, regardless of their heritage or their personal history or their family history or their social situations or their economic situations, all people will be able to come and receive forgiveness and grace and be reconciled with God, that through him, that work is gonna be done. And so that's the most important thing and here's what's really fascinating about it. As you look at Abraham, Abraham, there's nothing indicating that he knew God before this. Do you see that? So you have all the pagan of the names, pagan, 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 pagan. His wife has a pagan name. God chooses him, but there's no indication that he had ever known God or done anything to merit this blessing. There's nothing about his character that we get to see. There's nothing about his routines or his habits or his behavior, behavior that merits this favor. Like he certainly isn't known for his courage as you're gonna see at the end of this chapter. He certainly isn't known for being a dedicated, loving, tender husband as we're gonna see at the end of this chapter. Like there's nothing about this guy that makes you go, oh, this is the guy that God obviously wants to be the dude. So then why does God choose Abraham? Why does God choose him, have his life mapped out with promise and a future? Why in the world does God choose Abraham? As you're thinking that through, I think you just have to ask, why in the world does God choose me? Why did God choose me, a believer in Jesus? Why did God choose me? Why does God love me? Why does God have a, a place for me? And my favorite illustration I've ever heard a pastor share with this is this. You imagine you're on a date with your wife and everything is just going splendid. And then she throws you a curveball. 
She says, why do you love me? And every man knows I'm on thin ice right now. I'm one wrong word from sleeping on the couch. Because there's a lot of answers for that. You know, it could be, um, hey, I think you're really beautiful. Wrong, beauty fades. Looks go away. Okay, well, maybe it's, I really like the adventures that we get to go on and the hikes that we get to go on and, and the way that we ride bikes together and, and the way that you're just so fit. Okay, health fades, health deteriorates, all that can go away, so that's not a good answer. That might be a good answer for a moment, but then that fades. Well, maybe I really like the job that you have and the extra income that you bring to the family so we get to do all the extra things that we really enjoy and look forward to. Well, you could lose your job. So then what, you don't love me anymore? Like that's, that's all circumstantial. However you can answer that, it can get totally taken away, it can get lost, it can get removed, and now everything that makes you go, this is why I'm loved, uh-oh, goes away. And so how do you and I answer, well, why does God love me? Here's why God says he loves you. It's such a great text, and it's in Deuteronomy 7, 6. You can turn there or I can read it for you, but it's Deuteronomy 7, 6. Any other answer to your wife of why do you love me is a bad answer. God's gonna give you the right answer right here. Deuteronomy 7, 6, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. It wasn't because of that that the Lord loves you, for you are the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Why does God love me? Because he loves me. That's the answer. When your wife says, hey, why do you love me? Because I love you. And you could be like Matt even, because it says that too. It says, because he loves you and is keeping the oath. You can say, because I love you and I made a promise. I love you because I love you because I love you. It's circular reasoning. Why did God choose Abraham? Because he loves him. Why do you love him? Because I love him. My son, why do I love my son Elon? Because I love him. When he had frosting all over his face and it stained his teeth and it just looks like a total mess and anyone else would go, yuck, and I let that kid jump on me and rub his face all over my neck, it's because I love him. I love him because I love him because I love him. That's the only right answer. Why does God love you and me? Why does God choose you and me? Because he loves us. And it's not because of how good I am. It's not because God knew all the things that Justin could bring to the table. Like, oh my, this is such a win for us. If we could just get him on the roster. That was never a conversation. You and me are chosen and loved by God as a sheer act of his grace and his mercy. Abraham, you and me, we're totally wrong, off on our own things, totally mixed up. And it's because God loves us and because God lavishes his grace upon us that you and I get saved. God loves to take bad people and make them good. And that's what he's done with every single one of us. And that's what he's doing with Abram right here. And the last thing, the last thing to note and point out, there's something else here. He makes Abram a great nation, blesses him, makes his name great. And then it tells you why. It's not just, hey, Abram, I'm gonna do all these rad things for you and it's gonna be super good and you are just gonna love it and your family's gonna super appreciate it. And then God ends the conversation. He says, so that. He gives Abram, here's why. I'm gonna do these things so that 
you will be a blessing. Hey, I'm gonna bless you. I'm gonna make your name great. I'm gonna have this huge thing for you and your family to look forward to generation after generation after generation so that you will be a blessing. I think what happens is we as Christians, so often we look at the blessings that God has given us. We say, oh my gosh, I'm so blessed for my job, for my financial situation, for my reputation, for my family, for my heritage, for my, my, the current positions that I'm in, for the, all of these things. We could say, oh, I'm just so blessed for my family, whatever. And we become containers for all of God's blessings and we just stack them all up and, and I'm a container of blessing that God has just poured out on me. And everyone else can look at me and think, wow, maybe if I follow God, then I'll become a container for blessing too. And I'm just gonna have all these blessings. You and I are not supposed to be containers for blessing. We're supposed to be conduits for blessing. Now, what happens is as you walk with God, you're supposed to lose this, so what's in it for me mentality. That we're not doing things just because I get benefit, it's gonna make me look good, and I'm not engaging in, I'm not gonna serve in the kids' wing just because God is gonna bless me. It's I've been so blessed, how can I not? God has been so good to me financially, how can I not help those in need? God has been so good to me in my marriage, how can I not be involved when other people are struggling? God has been so good to me, how can I not? God doesn't just bless me and you for my benefit or my provision or my comfort. We're in turn supposed to become blessings for other people. God has given me resources, experience, so that I can be the city set on a hill, a beacon so that other people would say, oh, I want that. I want that God that he talks about, that he points me to. I'm not a container for blessing, but I'm a, con I'm a conduit for blessing. And Jesus lays this out in a parable very clearly. It's Matthew 25. He tells this parable about there's a master who's gonna leave and go on a trip. So he gets his servants and each according to their ability, he's gonna give them talents, which is a unit of, it's a measurement of money. So he gives them money. So he gives one servant five talents. He gives another two. And he gives the last one, one. And the one who had five takes it and trades and sells and does work and he makes five more. So he's got 10. The next one takes the two and makes it four. And the last one who had one just hides it away, just keeps it there. And Jesus says, at some point, the master comes home and everyone has to give an account for all that was given to them and what they did with it. And the one who had five and now has 10, he says, oh, I'm gonna make you, I'm gonna set you over so much. You were faithful with a little. You could be faithful over much. You were gonna be in charge of so much for eternity. And the next one, man, you were faithful with what was entrusted to you. Great job. You're gonna be entrusted with so much more. The only one that the master is disappointed in is the one who said, oh, I'm not gonna risk it. Oh, I gotta keep this contained. Oh, I can't let this get lost or go out. That's the only one that the master is disappointed in, upset with. The attitude that every single believer is supposed to have is God has given me this. How do I not use it for him? We're supposed to be just the biggest conduits of blessing. And what happens is when we do that, God gives you more. God says, oh, I can entrust you with more. We're not supposed to be containers. We're supposed to be conduits. And so continuing in verse four, so Abraham went. There's obedience. God came, shows up. Hey, I, here's all the plans I have for you. I, I'm choosing you out of pure, pure, sheer grace, not because of anything that you did, not because of anything you said, not because you had good morals, not because you had a good marriage. I'm choosing you to be my guy out of sheer grace. 
and then Abraham follows in obedience. That you and I, we get saved out of sheer pure grace, not because of anything that we did or because we had the right philosophy or the right morals or had the right history or did anything right. We get saved purely by grace. We believe that Jesus is Lord. We call him Lord and we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. You are saved. There's nothing that you can do to add to it. There's nothing that you can do to subtract from it. But you can sure lose blessing, miss out on blessing by not being obedient to the call that God has on your life to be quick to forgive, to be slow to anger, to go to your brother when he's sinned against you or when you've sinned against them, to raise your family right. You can absolutely miss out on all the blessing and all the life and all the flourishing that God has for you. You won't lose your salvation, but you can miss out on the amazing life that God has if you're not obedient to him. It's not legalistic, it's just factual. And I think you all know that. If you don't raise your kids, you get to raise your grandkids. Like that's just a saying in the world. If you're obedient to the things that God has called you to, there's going to be long-term blessing. And so Abraham went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Lot is a lot. Lot is gonna be a problem. He's not a small matter. Lot brings a lot of issues with him. And so we're gonna keep our eye on this guy. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the Oak of Moriah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Verse seven, then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. So God has met with Abram two times. Two times God has showed up. How God shows up, I don't know. Like it doesn't tell us in what form he took. It doesn't tell us anything other than God showed up. And it does that on purpose. Because the information that you and I need is God showed up and told Abram something. The information that I really want is how. I want like, so imagine this, imagine if, the text instead said there was a strong windy night and it started thundering outside and it was raining, just torrential downpour. And then God spoke to Abram. You know what would happen? Every Bible-believing Christian on every stormy night would go on every tall hill going, okay, God, I wanna meet with you. And every Christian would die from hypothermia and lightning bolts. Because what happens so often is we want a formula. Okay, what do I do to get to meet with God? It doesn't give you and I that. In fact, it's been 25 years since the last time Abram talked with God. So it's been a long period of time. All we know is God has shown up two times to talk to Abram. So is God dedicated to Abram? Totally. And two times God has promised Abram things with deliverables. I'm gonna give you a son. That's a deliverable, a tangible thing. God has promised that. So can we trust and believe that God is confidently going to show up again in a demonstrative way to Abram? I think so. 
So what this, as this part of the narrative comes to a close, you and I are supposed to know God has shown up tangibly in a real way and made a promise with a deliverable. And so Abram should be able to take that in confidence and in faith that God is gonna show up and be active in my life and he's not gonna let that fail. But here's what happens. There's a second part of this chapter that kind of just shows, okay, there's, there's an um, opportunity for faith and then fear shows up. And you're gonna, have the, you're gonna choose a master. Am I gonna choose to walk in faith and not by sight or am I, I'm gonna, am I gonna allow fear to overtake me and allow me to make bad choices in my own life and with my marriage and with my family? So looking at verse 10, the story moves on. Now, there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt, the sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. This is actually how I start every conversation with my wife. I say, hey, you are so attractive to me. And I have four kids, so it's worked four times. I'm just saying, it's a good, it's a good game. And, but Abram's not talking because he's got game. He's worried. He says, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. He says, you are so pretty that when these other men see you, they're gonna kill me so they can have you. And he's not just being flirtatious with his wife, he's serious. And you see it plays out in this next paragraph. That's exactly the conversation that get to happen. All these other people say, wow, she's super attractive. Here's what's amazing. She's 65. She is 65 years old and I don't know. All I know is my wife apparently has those same genes. Just gets better as we age, right? I mean, I gotta say something to compliment her. I, I had, so this is, this is not an aside, this is now on topic. I had a woman two weeks ago stop me at the door and say, hey, I gotta tell you something. My wife was walking on, I go, okay. And she goes, your wife is gorgeous. And I go, I know, right? She goes, no, like supermodel pretty. And I go, I have no idea why she's with me. And she goes, right? I'm like, ow? <laughs> Supposed to say, oh no, not you, ouch. Verse 13, say, you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. When the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. So God shows up to Abram twice, makes personal, deliverable promises to him. Hard times come and Abram folds. He hands over his wife to be in a harem of pharaohs in order to protect his own skin. And so there's a few things that you and I need to know about the situation. There's a famine going on. The Bible tells us two times, there's a famine and the famine was severe. Economically, things are really, really bad right now. 
They're super bad. They're so bad that they have to leave where their home is looking forward to the promise that God has for them in order to go to a place that might have food and resources that they can get. And relationally, you can infer that things are bad because there's no one else that they go to that they can ask for help or for food or for resources. Things are really, really bad right now. Things are as bad as they could get. And in those, opportun- in those times when things are economically bad and relationally bad and economic bad times do come and are coming, you have choices. You could walk by faith and not by sight or you can cave into fear. And those choices come up because you'll often be presented with an opportunity of are you gonna stand up for what is right and what is true and what is just or are you gonna fold to whatever the world wants you to do? And to Take what you know to be reality and what you know to be true and say, okay, I guess that isn't important and I'm gonna, I'm gonna do what you say is right for the moment just to protect my skin. I don't wanna lose my job. I don't wanna upset people. I don't wanna fall out of favor. So I, uh, yeah, yeah, she's my sister, whatever. You could choose to walk by faith and not by sight or give in to fear. And here's the thing that happens with Abram. This is his custom. He does this over and over and over again. You see it here, you see it in chapter 20, and you see it in chapter 26. But verse 17, here's what happens. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So the Exodus story isn't the first time you see Pharaoh's home being plagued by God which is kind of funny. I, I found humor in that. I was like, oh, this is actually neat. So the, the big problem here that you have to address, that you have to think through is this. God promised Abram, from your family, there's gonna come a lineage, a heritage, a seed that is going to then produce the Messiah and set all people free. You can't have Sarai in a dude's harem because whose kid is this really? right? That, that is a big problem. Well, here's the thing. The answer to it is this. The answer to that problem that it comes in your mind like, well, okay, what happened there? The answer actually shows up in chapter 20. So in chapter 20 of Genesis, this is the second time Abram that we know of because it says it was his custom. So the second time we know of where God gives up his wife, calls, him his, calls her his sister to protect his own skin. Here's the interaction. Genesis chapter 20, starting in verse 2. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. See, he's the wrong guy, right? Abraham is the wrong guy, but he's the right guy. And Abimelech, Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, behold, you are a dead man. Now, hold on. Now, you remember that. What does that mean? Because that could mean something really cool mafia, like I like to picture Jesus. You're a dead man, but that's like a threat. That's, I'm coming for you. I think it means something else. So hold on to that. You are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now, Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, Will you kill an innocent man? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. 
Then God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return or know that, you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. When I think what happened when God said, you are a dead man, he's not saying I'm gonna stop your heart. He's not saying I'm gonna kill you. He's saying this is where your line ends. This is where your lineage fades. And there's a commentator that I really, really like. And this, I've been laughing about this for two days. That said, the plagues that God sent to Pharaoh's home were the kind that makes a man incapable of performing the duties of a man on his wedding night. And I think that's so funny. I, I'm so childish, I get it, but man, that's hysterical to me. Like, right on. And so like, that's how you know. And somehow Pharaoh goes, why didn't you tell me that she was your wife? I think God approached Pharaoh in a dream and said, you're a dead man. And he goes, I didn't even know, dude. And so I just, I don't know, I'm, maybe it's just me. I think that is so funny, but that's what happened. So Sarai didn't get touched. So anyway, verse 18, it's just me. The Bible is just so unblushing. And I don't know, like when you read through something, sometimes you're like, oh, okay, you didn't touch or whatever. But then like when you, you're, yeah. so Pharaoh <laughs> called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? See, I think God came to him. Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. As an aside, a really funny thing that happens in Genesis chapter 20 when King Abimelech comes and confronts Abraham, Abraham, later in that chapter, he'll talk to Sarai and said, now see, I've given your brother all this money. I just think that's funny. Like you, you glance over it, but it's like totally a sting. I, I gave it to your bro, all right? I've been traumatized by God because of your lie. So the point of the Egypt episodes, right after the promises are made, right after all these promises come out, God's gonna do this stuff. God shows up two times. You're the guy, there's a line coming up after you. The reason that this comes up is because right off the bat, it looks like these promises are going to fail. In nearly every episode that's gonna follow this, over and over again, you're gonna see people engage in behaviors and activities and situations where you say, oh, the promise is gonna fail. The promised seed is in jeopardy because of the actions of these foolish people. But the narrative that's gonna follow is that God always remains faithful to his word. God is always gonna be faithful and God will even enter the arena and safeguard his promise. There's this reoccurring theme that the Israelites that you and I have to hold on to is that God, only God can bring about his promise and human failure, human idiocy is not gonna stand in the way of what God wants to do. So for you and me today, For you and me today, as we look at this chapter, as we look at Abraham, I think what we're supposed to be reminded of is, I'm not the right guy either. I'm not better than Abraham just because I haven't given my wife away. Yeah, I am. But I'm, 
I just have a better relationship with my wife. But you and I were the wrong people. God didn't choose us. God didn't claim us. God didn't call us because we were smarter or wiser or braver or more handsome or had more resources or we would be just perfect for his roster. It's because we were the wrong people that God was excited to, to lavish us in his grace and to bless us, not so that we become a container for his blessing, but a conduit for his blessing so that other people would say, can you believe how she cares for people, how he loves people, how he's so generous and kind and forgiving and slow to anger. Yeah, that's because of the community that's in. That's because of how he loves, that's because of the God that he continuously talks about who has loved him so much, he just can't help but express that love to you and to others. This week, I think let's be people who are mindful of, I'm a conduit of blessing. God has been so good, so faithful, so kind, so generous to me. I need to in turn pour that out on other people, not because I'm the right guy and not because I've done anything right, but because I'm the wrong guy and God has, despite that, chosen me and called me and redeemed me. So Jesus, we are so thankful that we are your chosen, called out people. I pray today that we would be reminded that we are your ambassadors, that we're called to demonstrate a culture of a far off land to a culture that has no idea about your kingdom or your goodness or your benefit. Jesus, help us be ambassadors this day and the week moving forward in our workplace and in our home and in our conversations. Help us to ambassador your kingdom well here in Grants Pass. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen, God bless you guys.